Happy Holidays from the DSR Network. We are deeply appreciative of our members and the year that we've had. To celebrate the holiday season, we are offering a 50% discount on either your first month or first year of membership. Members enjoy an ad-free listening experience, bonus content for virtually all of our shows, an invitation to the members-only Slack community, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of December, you can take 50% off the membership price for the first month or for the first year. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code DSRHOLIDAY at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code DSRHOLIDAY. Thank you very much for your support. Hi, this is DSR Network producer Riley Fessler. Our episode from the archive this week takes us back to our annual year in review for 2021. We hope you enjoy. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio. Coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and happy holidays. This is Deep State Radio. I'm your host, David Rothkopf. I'm coming to you from New York City, and I'm joined today by the whole gang, the originals, the Fab Four. John, Paul, <laughs> and Ringette. You're going to start a fight about who's who, David. Yeah. <laughs> well, the maker, the candlestick maker. Exactly. And that includes, as you have already heard, Corey Shockey, the American Enterprise Institute. How are you today, Corey? I'm exceedingly well, David. Thank you for asking. Excellent. And, which is saying something today, since literally everybody I know including the triple vaxxed are coming down with COVID now. Rosa Brooks is also with us. How are you today? I'm very well, David. And as far as I know, I don't yet have COVID, although I'm assuming it's just a matter of time, but I am, I am here in Puerto Rico in San Juan. What? Whoa. Oh my God. Fantastic choice, Rosa. You have alienated the audience, but. I know. um, Sorry, folks. On the other hand, you know, and by the way, Puerto Rico should be a state. You're mm-hmm. absolutely correct. It should be a state. We also have with us Ed Luce of the Financial Times. How are you today, Ed? I am middling. Thank you, David. Middling. <laughs> are you fair to middling or only middling? Or is middling above fair to middling or below fair to middling? Uh, I would say it's a rising trend. It's been it's been improving since the podcast began. Yeah. <laughs> That's the curative process of this podcast. And then, of course, we have David Sanger in Washington also. How are you, David? Uh, I'm fine. I was just thinking from your conversation, I had my COVID a year ago this week. So I gave it the office, David. You know, I've, I've, I've been there, done that. Leave so it to you. I thought I'd try to skip this round if I could. Leave it to you to be a first adapter. Yeah, yeah. Somebody out there setting a trend. I was trying to do it before they uh, invented or or distributed. They had invented already the vaccine just so that I had the full pleasant experience. Full, yeah. full experience. Yeah. Well, 
you're a trendsetter. We always knew that. So here we are. Why are we gathered here? It is Christmas week. And typically as these things go, we get together and we talk about what happened in the past year. And then we'll get together after the new year and we'll talk about what we think is going to happen in the year ahead. And we're always 100% right in our recollections, not in our predictions, but um, <laughs> at the age of me, at least, that's that's something. I think we should look back at the past year, and I think let's try to provide a little perspective on it. I'm going to give you each a chance to pick something out that happened in the past year that you think will help define it in the eyes of history, starting with Corey. I think COVID and how governments individually and how the international community, such as it is collectively, have handled COVID is unquestionably going to be the story. I mean, it's shocking that 30% of Americans, more than that, are declining to take a free and potentially life-saving vaccine. And it's not just the United States, although we have a particularly large refusenik population, but both the availability of vaccines globally and the willingness of others for whom a vaccine is available, especially in the so-called developed world, to take the vaccine is, I think, going to be a source of enormous mystification 200 years from now. Yes. I have to say it's a an, an source of enormous mystification to me right now. Thank you for pitching slow and over the plate to me, David. Yeah, right. It's going to get harder by the time I get around to saying it. Well, this thing. That you see, I, there's a reason he never goes to me first. Yeah. Yeah, anyway. I'll make it challenging. Rose is going to start each sentence here in Puerto Rico yeah. as I get ready to step out to the pool. Right. Exactly. We are very concerned about climate change. We're actually we were concerned about submarines, but I'm not going to talk about that. No, no, you're not. I'm going to I'm going to go to Ed first because I want to rib him about the fantastic COVID story going on in the UK right now, which just has everybody wildly up in arms because apparently while everybody was locked down last year, they had a Christmas party at the prime minister's house. So you can comment on that and then tell us what the other thing is that's going to be historically significant for the era. Yeah, I mean, this, this seems from a distance and probably close up to be an immensely trivial sort of hook to get Boris Johnson on that he had a party uh, a year ago during the previous Christmas lockdown and bro thereby broke his own rules against parties, against any, any sort of significant gatherings. I sort of take it as, you know, you, you get Al Capone on the accounting principle. People know that there are vastly greater sort of Johnson transgressions, um, you know, around the procurement process, which has basically been a VIP prep friends list, billions of pounds, massively overcharged public procurement to companies that didn't exist a week before that don't know how to make protective equipment or test and contact equipment, et cetera. But that hasn't been fully nailed yet. Um, and so they're, they're getting him on this. And I suppose it is something that's effective. It resonates with people because everybody does remember sticking to the rules and not having Christmas parties and not going to restaurants and not attending funerals 
and feeling very personally affected and that this was a sacrifice, only to discover that Boris had concluded the rules were for everybody else. And that's how he conducts things small and large. And therefore, I think this really resonates. You know, I'm not there, but people whose judgment I trust say this is the beginning of the end for him, that he's not going to come back from this. Unfortunately, when you look at the bench behind him, you rather dread what might come after him because the Conservative Party always go for the more Brexit person, the more fantastical thinker, the more ignorant public figure each time. And I'm afraid there are, hard though it might be um, to believe, more irresponsible, more ignorant figures than Boris Johnson dying to take his job. My thing of the year, although you asked for a specific event, I would have skillfully done a Corrie elision into a trend on COVID too, but she's taken that and, and done that well. So I'm going to I'm going to mention the Democracy Summit, not because I think it'll be remembered 200 days from now, let alone 200 years, but precisely because it won't be. I think this is an example of where Biden's been a bit more muddled in his foreign policy thinking and not yet as strategic as I would like him to be. So we had our podcast last year, and I can't remember what I said, but I suspect I had slightly higher aspirations for the kind of foreign policy Biden would deliver in practice that America is back would be a, a bit better thought through and a bit more effective at rallying allies to a common cause. The Democracy Summit wasn't it. It was incoherent talking shop that took a lot of time to arrange and sunk really into the Atlantic somewhere without trace before it had even finished. I hope for better next year, but right now I'm not, I'm not as impressed with Biden as I was expecting or hoping to be. Well, we're going to come back in, in the next round and talk about just that subject. You've teed that up. Well, Rosa, something else people will remember in the future. Gosh, I'm going to go with a trend, too, because if we're all cheating, I'm going to cheat. And I would go with democratic erosion, not only in the U.S. Uh, and obviously very notably in the U.S., but around the world with crackdowns in India, with crackdowns by the Chinese, with crackdowns in Brazil, with coups in multiple countries, Mali, Guinea, Myanmar, uh, Sudan, etc., Russian arrests of dissidents. Belarus gets an entire plane to land in order to get one guy. I mean, all over the world, um, we talked about this a fair amount in our last podcast. We have seen both public faith in democracy. We've seen global publics losing their faith in democracy. And we have seen authoritarian leaders cracking down and, and making numerous anti-democratic moves. I don't think this trend began this year. I think we've been seeing it over the last few years, but I think that with the January 6th failed insurrection here in the United States, that really cemented the sense that, oh boy, democracy is in, is in big trouble. It's in big trouble globally. If even here, the US public is losing faith in democracy, we've got a, a really, really serious problem. So that's not a single event, it's the whole series of events. But to me, I worried that this could be the year that historians will see as the sort of inflection point where democracy went down the toilet. I sure hope not. Wow, that could make Ed's comment all the more poignant. David, now, because, you know, as a sort of our techno geek, you can say, you know, well, in July, we were each implanted with a tiny chip that nobody <laughs> remembers. 
You were, but David, but you don't remember it. <laughs> it was in your vaccine, David. It was actually, it was earlier than that. It was the secret part of the solar winds attack. And uh -huh. you know, just, yeah, anyway. well, so what are you predicting that hasn't been mentioned yet? Yeah. I would completely agree with Rosa that democratic retreat is a big theme of the year. Uh, I would never argue with Ed on anything that involves British politics, but I, I'm not sure in the end that whether Boris stays or goes is going to necessarily move Western civilization here. What I worry about is that when we look back at 2021, we will wonder whether it was the year in which the efforts to avoid the resurgence of a Cold War may have failed. That we've seen a much, a great deepening of the confrontation with China, whether it is over Taiwan or technology exports or just the separation of the American economy and the Chinese economy in critical areas. We have seen the rise of like this old world effort by um, Putin to restore some of the boundaries that he lost when the Soviet Union collapsed. We don't know how that's going to work out. I still think there is plenty of time left for the United States, Russia, and China to get on a different vibe together. But I don't see right now a whole lot of openings to go do that. And I think that the events that we've been discussing here from January 6th, which the Russians exploited and the Chinese exploited, to COVID have all sort of deepened this trend because we now have a Russian vaccine, an American vaccine, a Chinese vaccine. I'm not sure you're very happy if you've had either the Russian or the Chinese one right now, but they, they exist. So in a world that we thought 10 years ago was heading toward great globalization, we're seeing sort of this retreat to borders that I think matches the democratic retreat. One other quick note about Biden himself. If you had looked at the statistics that we've seen at the end of the year, and we had discussed these all on January 1st, that you had more than 200 million Americans vaccinated, that you had the economy essentially in a vastly better place than we thought, the stock market in a vastly better place than we thought, that the challenge of inflation, worrisome as it is, is really a reflection in some ways of the boom. Then you would have thought, boy. Biden must be doing just great in the polls. And instead, what we're discovering is he's not doing great. And if you look at the economist numbers today, he's not even doing great with the younger voters who were responsible for bringing him to office. And it's that dichotomy between a president who has largely done what he said he would do, but has not seemed to inspire his base even while doing it that I think is hard to figure out right now. Although it is worthy of note that he, he, he has done what he said he would do. Let's take a look at what he has done on the foreign policy side. And I'm just go around and I'd like each one of you to offer up your nutshell critique or positive assessment of Biden foreign policy. What do, what do you think worked, Corey? What didn't? 
I think the AUKUS agreement worked, but the Australia-UK-US agreement worked. Did, did uh, Rosa pay you off? I can't believe you brought that up, Corey. <laughs> I was going to take the bullet on submarines. All right, so you all right. didn't have okay. to, Rosa. I'm just going to cover my ears. What what I is mean, that in the water just behind uh, behind Rosa? I, I'm just trying to figure it out. It looks big and nuclear. It's a shark. Uh, <laughs> so I think the AUKUS agreement worked. I think in general, the coordination with allies on the challenges and dangers Russia is posing has worked pretty well. I think I'm more positive about that than many other people. But I think the AUKUS agreement is a demonstration that, you know, they're so-so at this. They're not great. And I think the debacle of Afghanistan is going to weigh very heavily in the judgment of the administration for two reasons. First, because they looked incompetent. And second, because the visual image of people clinging to aircraft that are taking off and the heartlessness of the president's evaluation and the administration's evaluation generally about that, maybe people expected, I certainly expected, the Biden administration to be kinder than that. And while I didn't expect them to be brilliant, right, I supported Biden for president because I didn't think he was a danger to the Constitution, not because I thought he was going to be particularly good president. But I do think it's disappointing that they're not better because all of the crowing about America is back rings a little hollow. And if they hadn't been crowing, but had been doing, you know, boring competency a little more effectively, I think they'd be in a lot better shape, both substantively and in terms of public attitude. Surely, Ed, you will say, taking the long view, David's focus on the polls is less important than his focus on what is getting done. Corey's focus on the exit is less important than the ending of a 20-year war. And if David gets to focus on the polls, the fact that polls internationally say that we're held in better standing now than we were a year ago is also reflecting well on Biden. I know you were going to stand up and defend the Biden administration that way. Is that correct, Ed? I'm a literist. I'm going to give the good and the bad. You asked both the good. Yeah, I mean, that's true. You know, starting. From a, from a very low bar, which he cleared ex exceptionally well, is that he's not Trump. And that was the sort of first and foremost quality of his candidacy and his appeal to the rest, well, not all of the rest of the world, but the rest of the world that we like. And we joining the WHO, critically important in the middle of a pandemic, attempting, I, I'm not sure very successfully, but to join the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal. Again, very important. I suspect too much damage was done. Um, and Iran had gone too far towards breakout for that to, to produce a result. Speaking to allies with respect, saying the right things about democracy, all these things matter a great deal. And it's an enormous relief that we have an American president doing that again, even if, you know, I would quibble with some of the, the, the sort of execution as, as with the democracy summit. So He's way cleared that, that low bar. He is not Trump, and that is, that is a spectacular advance. On the negative stuff, we've talked a lot about Afghanistan before. You know, whether that will have longer-term consequences, I, I don't know. It will for Afghans, but I mean for geopolitics, I, I don't really know. What I will say is everything right now 
and since he was inaugurated, since Biden was inaugurated, really does sort of depend on COVID. And I am disappointed by the lack of scale and alacrity and prioritization of the global vaccine effort by the United States. It's done, it's done more than other countries, but other countries have been feeble. And the United States should be comparing itself not to what other countries have done, but to what it could be doing and what it needs to be doing for all our sakes. And it still seems like a second or third order priority, and it really should be first, second, and third. So much depends upon it. The economy, uh, America's geopolitical standing, Biden's domestic political standing. And you know, just as an addendum to that, at home, it's still hard to get home test kits. It's absurd. It's really absurd. So I think my main criticism would be that the pandemic management has not been competent enough and it's not been prioritized enough. Rosa? I actually give the Biden administration a lot of credit for just frankly surviving this year. I I think that this was an extraordinarily difficult moment. I think, yes, we all came in with high expectations. But I think I I don't find it particularly surprising that even a very good, competent administration didn't score any big, huge wins this year. You know, we didn't figure out how to put Putin back in a box. We didn't once and for all, uh, you know, establish with China that we are going to be the dominant power. We didn't solve climate change. You know, we didn't fix COVID. Right. I mean, okay, true. But I think if you think, I mean, I mean, and this really, in some ways, I think was your point, Ed. If if you think about where we were a year ago, it's it's not bad. It's really difficult. The Biden administration came in facing not only the structural challenges of a globalized world in the middle of a pandemic with major geopolitical tensions, but they also came in in the wake of Trump and wake of Trump catastrophes. They also have spent much of this year, they are still working hard to get key positions in the national security and foreign policy world filled with Republicans uh, just being incredibly intransigent. So we still have all these positions that are filled with people who are only acting. And given all of that, given the scale of the challenges they came in with, I would kind of give Biden this year as all you're trying to do is avert total catastrophe and and get things on a slightly more stable footing. And overall, I think they've done a pretty good job doing that, as Ed said. You know, and everything else is gravy. I mean, I wish that we had seen much more progress on climate change. I wish we'd seen much more progress on vaccine distribution. I wish we'd seen much more progress on reducing tension, great power tensions between US, Russia, China. I wish all of those things, I wish, well, actually, I'll get to my one criticism in a minute. I'll, I'll hold that. I wish a lot of things, but I actually think that they have had a lot of small achievements that tend to get overlooked, but that cumulatively do tend to add up, whether it's, uh, you know, smaller achievements on trade, smaller achievements on climate change, smaller achievements on reestablishing some basic trust with allies. So we'll see what happens in the next couple of years. And I think we will rightly hold them to a higher standard, you know, as they get more people in place, as everybody just gets their footing. But I think for year one, given the mess they started with, it's been a pretty good job. The one criticism I would make is really to echo something Corey said. And here's where my instincts always differ from the instincts of uh, every single press person for every single administration I've ever worked in. I do think that the sort of, oh, we've, we've accomplished so much. We're so great. We've done everything, et cetera. 
it's just always a mistake because everybody knows that everybody knows that this is hard. Everybody knows that the world is messy. And I would I, I have no idea how the average American voter responds to these kinds of claims. But for me, I think, no, come on, tell me the truth. Say we've we've chipped away at some stuff, but there's a lot of problems, you know, and we're still struggling with this. And yeah, we didn't get that one quite right. And it's certainly for Afghanistan. You know, I think that I think that the tone was wrong. You know, I think saying we're doing the best we could. In hindsight, we would have done some things differently. You know, we still think overall this was absolutely the right thing to do for these reasons. But we acknowledge these tragedies. We acknowledge this messiness. We're going to do our best to ameliorate them where we can. On that and many other things, I think that kind of tone would, at least to to my mind, be less off-putting to voters and to global publics. David? I agree with Rosa that particularly on Afghanistan, they would have benefited a lot from saying we got the the policy right and the execution left a fair bit to be desired. Um, And I think they would have had more credibility. That said, I don't think voters in the long run are going to hold any of that against Joe Biden. I think they're going to conclude that Afghanistan has been a messy place to operate for the past 20 years that it was messy on the way in and messy on the way out and messy every year in between, and that they will only remember that Americans are no longer fighting and dying there. I do think that Ed's right. They laid the basis pretty well. And, you know, when you look back at most administrations in the first year, you can't say a whole lot about how well they've laid the basis. The first year of Obama, the first year of Clinton, even certainly the first year of George W. Bush, though that was an unusual thing because of 9-11. I don't think that any of those have had as distinctive a change and sort of organizational directional philosophy as Biden has had. But that doesn't necessarily translate into something that we will see as success for the reasons that I, I laid out before. One thing I wish we had done a little bit better, Biden was absolutely right in saying you build your strength abroad by building it first at home. And while we're all focused on the fact that Build Back Better didn't pass in the first year, and that was a significant setback, the China bill didn't pass in the first year. And that was the core of how we were going to rebuild the semiconductor industry, invest anew in batteries and long-ranging batteries and quantum computing and artificial intelligence. And the absence of a sense of urgency about that told me that the lessons of competing with China haven't fully set in politically yet. Okay. So this brings us to the uh, end of our first half hour, where we usually take a break. And before we continue on, for those of you not continuing on with us because you are just sampling our wares and you haven't become a member yet. I wish you a happy holidays. And, uh, you know, later in the week, we've got a a podcast dealing with a look back at the year politically. And then when we get back after our holiday break, we're going to look ahead to the next year. So we hope you will join us for that and do take care of yourselves. For the rest of you, hang on for just one moment. So what I'd like to do for our last 10, 15 minutes here is talk about why Rosa isn't Puerto Rico and we're not. 
And uh, why she didn't invite us to join her there, because the rest of us, it's very cold where we are. I mean, David looks bundled up on our Zoom here. I'm still trying to figure out how there's a silo for her to feel safe in on an island. Possibly Vieques. You know, there was a lot of... (laughs) Excellent catch, David. I can't say. I can't can't say. (laughs) It could be like one of those underwater tunnels, like in the Bond movies. Oh, yeah. I frequently frequently think of of the Bond movies and Rosa and sort of the same... The same breath. Yeah, no, she has that Pierce Brosnan car, (laughs) the Lotus that goes underwater. Yeah. 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 That's the way she rolls. That was a sly effort to work submarines back into the conversation. No, you're, you're all about <laughs> submarines and we know it. Um, I, so I, I just want to make the point, Rosa, that if you have a submarine, you don't need a silo. You need a launching that's silo. Fair. That's a really right? good point, David. David, you're a, a technical whiz well, yet again. So I would like to go to all four of you as the final round of this and ask you what story from the past year didn't get enough coverage that you think is going to be significant in the years to come. In other words, we all talked about Afghanistan. We all talked about Biden versus Trump. We all talked about some of these other things we've talked about in this first round. But has something happened someplace in the world that we haven't focused sufficiently on and that people will look back and say, why weren't they paying attention to that? And I'll start with Corey. I think Chinese power has probably crested and there are economic indicators and political indicators that China is stalling. And so the big story is just as we in the West begin to mesh the gears for a policy to contain a stampedingly successful China, We are missing that that's not the China we're looking at anymore. It may be more dangerous as it stalls. It will certainly choose to force a bifurcation of some things. They already do it in information. They already do it in critical industries. But I think we may see it more broadly as China falters. And that'll be a policy challenge for those of us in the West to figure out how to manage a stalling or failing China without military conflict. Okay, that's certainly going to be a big issue one way or another. Ed? I think we always, I mean, I could have said this last year, but I think we always underestimate uh, and overlook the importance of Africa. And we can think of specific examples in the last year in in terms of this, this virus or the breakout of various civil wars. But if you look at the larger global trends, Africa is going to take up a a larger and larger share of the global population. It's going to exceed the population of Europe and the United States. Um, I mean, it already does exceed the population of Europe and the United States. It's going to be double within about 10 years. It's really the crucible where a lot of the things we talk about, climate change, global stability, global public goods, is going to be forged either in failure or success. And I think the fact that we don't focus as societies of media, people in professional media, or indeed in terms of our diplomacy, that Africa remains such a low priority 
is is a, is a big mistake. The more we invest in Africa, the more return we'll get. And so I think Africa is a story we, we should stop taking our eye off. Excellent point. Rosa. I'm going to name something that I think we we have tried to work on, but probably not hard enough, which is which is just global coordination mechanisms in a sense. Um, I was thinking about a wide range of different challenges from COVID, climate change, migration, supply chain problems, et cetera, all of which continue to serve to highlight our interconnectedness and the the impossibility of going it alone for any country and the diminished relative power of every country in the world. And I think we know that. I think that the folks in the White House and the State Department and AID and Pentagon and everywhere else are smart people who are keenly aware of this. But I don't think we've put as much energy as we perhaps could have into trying to really be creative about figuring out what kinds of significantly different coordination and decision-making mechanisms are needed. And maybe it's just impossible. I mean, my fear is that it's just not possible, period, but that we are indeed entering a period of, of global backsliding and chaos on pretty much everything. And I also recognize how hard it is just, it's the, you know, fixing the plane while it's flying problem, you know, that none of the Biden, the Biden administration has not been given the luxury of Let's just put everything on pause while we think about these really complicated challenges that are, you know, far-reaching and inchoate. You know that that instead they've had crisis after crisis, a handful of them of our own creation, but most of them externally externally imposed. But that's the thing that I mean. I think that's the kind of big, big crisis challenge moving forward. It's not about a particular issue. It's about is it possible at this moment in history at this moment in geopolitics to figure out, you know, what's the UN equivalent for uh, the rest of this century, or at least the next few decades? What's the big new idea, the big new institutions, the big new processes? And we have no idea. I mean, I think we've been talking about this for the last decade, and we still just have absolutely no idea. And our failure in that regard is being illustrated to us over and over and over and over again uh, when it comes to those big global challenges. David. So, David, I'm going to play the type here. We started the year, as I mentioned before, with solar winds, the one where they placed that chip in Rothkoff's head. No, the Russians <laughs> didn't do that. But what they did do was find a vulnerability. And they didn't find a vulnerability. They created a vulnerability that ripped across corporate America and much of the federal government. And we end the year without a big lessons learned from that. We had during the year this huge rise in ransomware attacks that led to that first summit meeting between President Putin and President Biden. The first one in which nuclear weapons took a, a back seat, as we discussed this summer, to the use of cyber weapons. And we've just reported in the past few hours that the U.S. has sent cyber teams into Ukraine for fear that while Putin is massing troops, all he really needs to do is bring down parts of the infrastructure of Ukraine that he's brought down before in an effort to try to destabilize Zelensky and try once again to, to bring Ukraine within Russia's orbit. So what we've seen is 
a real explosion in the use of cyber as a strategic weapon. And I don't think that our response as a nation has quite matched that. I do have to say that the administration has done a quite impressive job of organizing itself around the problem, putting a lot of great expertise together, trying to get the bureaucracy going in putting much higher cybersecurity standards that everyone who deals with the federal government has to has to deal with. But I'm not sure it's sunk into the public understanding yet about what kind of new age we've entered here. Yeah, and I think that's a I think that's a good point. And I think it's related to the broader point that it may be that the world looks back on this past year and for all our our meetings, the US re-entering the Paris Accords and uh, COP26 meetings in Edinburgh, we didn't do nearly enough to deal with the climate crisis. And that may loom as existential for some parts of the world. Or that, you know, there were developments somewhere in science and technology that are going to change the game that we haven't been talking about yet, whether it's breakthroughs in AI or in in biotech, certainly breakthroughs in biotech from a few years ago in dealing with mRNA vaccines proved to be of massive importance this year. We may also look at the degree to which we have not vaccinated a large portion of people in this world as, as one of the big stories for next year. But we'll talk about those stories and our outlook for 2022 on our uh, first show of the new year. When we begin our shows in the new year, the original cast and crew of Deep State Radio will be joining you on Tuesdays, not Mondays. And we will be introducing another pod, which deals with national security futures. We'll talk more about that, as well as our ongoing series of Thursday pods that deal with politics and Wednesday pods that tend to deal with books and newsmakers and some other things. But we'll tell you about that as the new year unfolds. If you're able to join us on Thursday as we take a look back at politics in America this year, the year of January 6th, and its aftershocks going all the way through to Joe Manchin's uh, betrayal of the president just yesterday, as of the day we're taping this. So you won't want to miss that. And we hope you have uh, excellent holidays and that you uh, take good care of yourselves because it's, it's kind of dangerous out there. And uh, even if you're vaccinated and wearing a mask and being cautious, you can still run a risk. So take care. Happy holidays. We'll see you soon or in the new year. Thank you, David. Thank you, Corey. Thank you, Rosa. Thank you, Ed. You are great guys. And it is a great pleasure to do this with you. You're in and you're out. I learned an immense amount. Bye-bye for now.